This is an ABC podcast. Good morning and welcome to AM. I'm Kim Landers coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Police in the US say they don't know if a mass shooting in Los Angeles was racially motivated. At least 10 people have been killed and another 10 injured. The attack took place at a dance hall in a predominantly Asian-American community on the same weekend that the Lunar New Year is being celebrated. Congresswoman Judy Chu represents the area. It is horrible that such a thing could occur at a time of celebration for so many in the AAPI community and in the Asian community worldwide. This is a time to be with family, to celebrate, and yet this tore uh, a hole through all of our hearts. And for more on the shooting, I spoke earlier to North America correspondent Jade McMillan. Police were called to a ballroom dance studio in Monterey Park late last night, local time, and when emergency services arrived, they found five women and five men who'd been shot dead. Another 10 people were taken to local hospitals with conditions ranging from stable to critical. The attack took place not far from where a Lunar New Year Street Festival had been held earlier in the day. Police say that the event at the dance hall was not connected to that festival, uh, but out of caution, the second day of that street festival that had uh, been due to take place today has been cancelled. Los Angeles County Sheriff Robert Luna says officers are still trying to find the gunman. He's described as an Asian man between the ages of 30 and 50, and the sheriff says it's not yet clear what the motive behind this shooting was. We don't know if this is specifically a hate crime defined by law, but who walks into a dance hall and guns down 20 people? Um, The description we have now is of a male Asian. Uh, Does that matter? I don't know. I can tell you that everything's on the table. Our detectives are looking at every possibility with our partners. And Jade, has there been any update on the search for the gunman? No, as far as we know, police are still trying to find him. They say that they've brought in extra resources to help with that effort. And they're also, as part of this investigation, looking into another incident about 20 minutes after the Monterey Park shooting. Uh, They say that a man walked into a second dance hall in another area, that he was holding a gun, but people there managed to wrestle it from him before he fled. Uh, So police still trying to work out whether those two incidents Correspondent Jade McMillan. When the Australia Day public holiday arrives this Thursday, will you be heading into work? A growing number of companies are now offering their employees the option to work on Australia Day and take a day of leave on another day. But as Oliver Gordon reports, some Indigenous activists say ignoring or abandoning the public holiday isn't necessarily the answer. Shoppers at Melbourne's Queen Victoria Market have different views on what's become a divisive public holiday. I would prefer to work on Australia Day because I don't want to honour it as a day to celebrate or a day to, like a public holiday to have off um, because it's Invasion Day. I do sympathise with the the way that that particular date can upset people, so, but um, um, I don't feel like it should interfere with the day off, basically, you know. Late last year, Telstra and Woodside announced they were offering the option of working on January 26, following similar moves by Deloitte, KPMG, Spotify and Channel 10. But it's not just large corporates making the offer. 
Melbourne man Hugo works for a mid-sized construction company. He says his managers are respecting his wishes to work this Thursday. It's a day that I think is insensitive to large sections of the wider community. I think it's probably a day that we could celebrate in a different way on a different date. And so your work has allowed you to take another day off instead of Australia Day? Yeah, that's right. Um, It's not something done across the company, but I approached my manager about it and they were happy to let me do that. So should we expect this to be the norm? Emma Clark from the Queensland Chamber of Commerce and Industry says it could ultimately come down to whether or not businesses are up for paying the extra rates. Penalty rates, um, of course, do exist on all public holidays. So therefore, it's between the business and the employee as to whether um, an employee needs to substitute or wants to substitute a public holiday. And if the business decides that that's in their best interest, if it suits the business for that employee to work on a public holiday, then that's for them to decide. She says while this discussion often centres around the January 26 public holiday, it can be applied to others. For example, there are some um, religious beliefs around holidays like Easter and Christmas, and potentially workforces might not choose to acknowledge those public holidays. So if you're opposed to celebrating Australia Day, is heading into work a good way to voice your concerns? Indigenous woman Kayla Cartledge is organising an event called Our Survival Day for this Thursday. She says that's a complex question. Yeah, I think it's a progressive step forward, um, but I do believe that there's an importance behind mourning on that day and recognising that day for what it is as well. Working or not, she sees this Thursday as a time to reflect on Australian history. I do think that it's great that people are pushing away from the Australia Day barbecues and things like that, Um, but the step forward I want to see is people at Aboriginal events and marches and things like that. Do you think January 26th should remain a public holiday? I think that it should um, be a public holiday for sorry business. Indigenous woman Kayla Cartledge ending that report from Oliver Gordon. The operators of some of the most popular dating apps like Tinder, Bumble and Grindr are meeting with the federal government on Wednesday to discuss safety measures. Last month, a New South Wales man who police allege had a history of domestic violence was charged with the murder of a woman he met online. The case has sparked calls for changes to stop people with a known violent background registering on dating apps. The Federal Communications Minister, Michelle Rowland, spoke with me earlier. Minister, should dating apps be doing criminal checks on users? Kim, we are keen to see through this national roundtable what kinds of supports are already in place and what kinds of technologies are being used by these apps and also what measures have or are being considered by state governments and in the context of the work the eSafety Commissioner is doing, what we need to further do as uniform as possible to keep Australians safe. So, Kim, I'm going to be keeping an open mind as a um, my ministerial colleagues who are attending. But the point of this roundtable is to hear from the dating app providers themselves, also law enforcement experts and representatives of government, because we want to get the best results to keep Australians safe online. A report from the Australian Institute of Criminology found three quarters of online daters surveyed had been subject to some sort of online sexual violence. One third had experienced abuse in person. Are dating apps proactively stopping users who've been removed from predatory behaviour from popping up on sites with new accounts and, and aliases? 
We know that they have some measures in place and that there have been improvements over the years. But exactly as you say, Kim, that report from the Australian Institute of Criminology demonstrates that there are unacceptable levels of abuse and harassment. The Albanese government is deeply concerned about it. And we also recognise that we have over 3.2 million Australians using dating apps apps in 2021. And it's actually now the most common way to meet a new partner. 10 years ago, it would have been uncommon to reveal you met a new partner online. Now it's mainstream. So taking all these factors together, we think it is opportune to examine holistically the regulatory framework discuss with the dating apps what they are doing and what more they can be doing. Because again, in the end, the result we want to get is a safer experience for Australian consumers. Are you confident that the apps are responding quickly enough to reports about online harassment and image-based abuse, for example, and are reported assaults getting immediately referred to police? But I think we should examine all these issues in a thorough manner through this roundtable. And again, that is the purpose of this. So we can hear precisely what they are doing because too many people are having bad experiences. In some cases, they have complained it is because of the lack of speed at which the dating apps are are remedying these situations. But again, we also need to look at what the regulatory framework does. So all these things need to be taken together. What's stopping dating apps, for example, doing criminal checks on their users? I mean, you can do working with children checks. Why can't it be done for people on these dating apps? Well, some of these apps have their own requirements, I know, for um, sort of pre-vetting before they uh, get to use them. Uh, But in some cases, of course, they are not consistent. So I think it's important here to hear, particularly from the police side of things, uh, where there have been complaints and what the uh, dating apps have represented to users who would like to have uh, a better experience. But I think that the dating apps would be well on notice that the Albanese government intends to not only take this very seriously, but take whatever action is necessary, certainly in conjunction with the states and territories. And I think all governments in Australia want to do the same. Well, what repercussions are these apps going to face if they don't beef up security? Well, I think the apps will be well aware that incentive regulation operates in a way that is designed to change behaviours, obviously. Um, And I wouldn't put it past uh, either at a federal level or at a state level, further measures being adopted and put into hard law and regulation. Such as? If it is found that, well, for example, there could be uh, fines and other sanctions for failing to comply. But again, I don't want to get ahead of the roundtable, but we know that there are regulatory options that are available for all levels of government. There are legislative options available um, to levels of government. And we should uh, examine what is being done now. And if the situation does not improve, then certainly it is within the scope of government to make sure that we do everything we can to keep Australians safe online. If I could shift to the online harassment of children, over the past year, the eSafety Commission has probed 1,700 cyberbullying complaints and asked social media companies to remove offensive content more than 500 times. Are more regulations needed to regulate how platforms respond to illegal and, and harmful content with children? 
we know that too many uh, young children uh, and is more prevalent uh, are being uh, bullied online. But we also want to ensure that people know where to complain and have the tools and awareness of those tools available to them. In uh, late last year, we had a report come out um, from uh, the previous term, which demonstrated that too many people um, did not know that the eSafety Commissioner's resources and work was available to them. So increasing that awareness is important, but also we're getting on to the first year of the Online Safety Act uh, being in operation. And I think it's important that the eSafety Commissioner be allowed to bed down uh, implementing those laws. And I expect that we will see um, even uh, even further action by the eSafety Commissioner and by the government to ensure that we get better results in this area. Minister, thank you very much for speaking with AM. Pleasure. That's the Communications Minister, Michelle Rowland. A cost of living crisis, a chronic lack of public housing and worker shortages. The economy is looming as the biggest challenge for New Zealand's incoming Prime Minister. Chris Hipkins was unanimously elected leader of the Labor Party yesterday, replacing Jacinda Ardern, who announced her shock resignation last week. He'll be sworn in on Wednesday. Earlier this morning, Chris Hipkins spoke to Radio New Zealand. We need to focus in on some of those bread and butter issues that New Zealanders are certainly focused on at the moment, including, um, you know, issues like the cost of living, you know, the effects of the ongoing global uh, inflation pandemic that we're experiencing at the moment. Well, to discuss the challenges the new PM will face, I spoke earlier to Dr Bryce Edwards, a lecturer in politics at Victoria University of Wellington. The new Prime Minister is promising to focus on bread and butter issues. What are some of the biggest challenges he's going to face if he's going to tackle that? Really, he has to uh, change the perception that the current Labour government is more concerned with middle class or liberal issues. So under Jacinda Ardern, the government kind of started to be seen as being more about kind of social justice and agendas around ethnicity and gender rather than kind of the, the big issues of economics and cost of living and so forth. So Chris Hipkins is really trying to change that narrative. He's going back to really position himself and his deputy Carmel Cipollone as being kind of working class politicians, um, people representing wage earners and focusing on, on yeah, housing crisis, education, health <clears throat> and jobs really. And that's quite a different look to what we've had over the last few years. With inflation more than 7%, some economists predicting that New Zealand could go into recession. How is Chris Hipkins going to convince voters that the government's got the right economic management credentials? Oh, look, it's going to be really hard. Um, One thing they have on their side is the fact that they managed to deal with COVID relatively well. And so they're going to be able to show that they're the the party of competency, of uh, getting people through hard times. And that's really uh, the big pitch they're going to make, that voters shouldn't put it all at risk. They shouldn't take on a, a, a national party that is much less experienced and still seems to be struggling to get its its program together. So, yeah, the fact that there's some continuity um, with this government and that there's some stability there is really their big argument. Well, the Labor government had been trailing in the polls ahead of the October election. Jacinda Ardern had become a bit of a polarising figure in New Zealand. Does her departure give the government a fresh start? 
Yes. Um, I mean, initially people just thought that with the departure of Ardern that the game is over, that there's no way that Labour can win this election. But suddenly the consensus seems to be changing that this is actually to the advantage of the Labour government, that it allows them to put a fresh face uh, and reset their policy agenda. It's a chance for them to ditch some of the more unpopular programmes that were kind of an albatross around uh, its neck. So, yeah, I, I really think that they're back in the game and that Chris Hipkins suddenly does seem like the answer for what Labour was missing, kind of a, a fix-it person who's no-nonsense and really speaks more to everyday working New Zealanders. That's Dr Bryce Edwards from Victoria University of Wellington. As Australia's major cities continue to grow, there's fierce debate about how to deal with a looming shortage of burial space. In Sydney, there have been no new cemeteries built over the past 50 years, even though the population has more than doubled in that time. But now it's hoped a new cemetery on the city's outskirts might ease that shortage, as Gavin Coote reports. At this cemetery on Sydney's western outskirts, burial space is quickly running out and Kazi Ali, who chairs the Muslim Cemeteries Board, is desperate. It's a nightmare. The reason being the land we have got available at this point in time is not going to go for more than three to four years. After running out of room in its own cemetery, the Muslim community was offered 4,500 plots at a nearby Catholic cemetery, but it too is reaching capacity. It is a situation will never ending because people will die and alternatives is cremation. Our religion doesn't allow cremation. Jewish doesn't allow cremation. Catholic also doesn't allow. Most of the Catholic doesn't allow cremation. A 2021 review found Sydney's major cemeteries could reach capacity within a decade. Just outside the southwest suburb of Campbelltown, construction has now begun on a massive new cemetery. The cemetery, with 136,000 burial plots, will completely surround Jackie Kirkby's 160-year-old homestead. And they're going to put this cemetery within 10 metres of our boundary. We're sitting right smack bang in the middle of the cemetery. What's it going to mean for the future of this home? We've been told by valuers that the home is devalued to the point of perhaps being unsaleable. And that puts us in a very difficult position. The 133-hectare cemetery has been at the centre of a decade-long battle between community groups and the Catholic Cemetery Trust. And Jackie Kirkby worries for other communities that are slated for new cemeteries. And it represents just how broken the planning system is. And this community has no confidence in the planning system. You should be working with people and with communities They're still saying we're doing this for the community, even though this community here has rejected it. Lauren Hardgrove is the Chief Operating Officer of the Catholic Cemetery Trust. Look, nobody wants a cemetery in their backyard. When we actually look at sourcing land, we're really limited in what our options are, particularly in regards to zoning, accessibility, and all of those things that need to be taken into consideration. So if it was an essential part of that planning process and considered critical infrastructure, I don't think we'd be facing the same objections that we do. The new cemetery near Campbelltown will only go some way in averting a shortage of burial space. And with no sign of a long-term solution to the crisis, there are growing calls for a complete rethink about how cemeteries are designed. David Newstein is a Sydney architect whose design studio is looking at new ways of designing cemeteries, including burying bodies among newly planted vegetation belts near towns and cities. But that isn't necessarily for everybody. I'm talking about a kind of gradual 
cultural change rather than sweeping changes that would come in overnight and displace people's traditional views or their or their expectations around burial. In a statement, a spokesman for the New South Wales Department of Planning and Environment says it's taking a whole-of-government approach to addressing the burial space shortage. This includes investigating the repurposing of government land and giving cemeteries of 5,000 or more plots state-significant development status. Gavin Coote reporting, and that is AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Kim Landers. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. As we embark on 2023, many of us will be thinking about our finances and whether this year will be any easier than last year. Today, with the possibility of a global recession still very much on the cards, we look at how Australia might fare. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.